0: Welcome back everyone to another Tuesday and today's a really special occasion because I'm joined by Ali Houston, a good friend of mine and somebody I've known for a year or so. Um, he was actually on the first series of the podcast and he also, you know, when you, you're starting up a big project, you go to your mates first and say, can you help me? And he did that early day. So thank you for that, Ali. And he's back here today. So welcome back to UK Low Carb. Hi, Dan. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be on. Now you've been busy since last we spoke because last time I think it was in March, um, maybe even February, actually we recorded, and you were talking about the book that was going to come out about the ice cream idea you're developing. And I know that already the book is out and it's on Amazon. Everyone can go and get that. Um, you've been pretty busy this, this last few months, right? Um, how have you found all of that and the whole COVID breakout and, uh, the lockdown? How's it been for you?
1: Yeah, well, um, you know we decided to focus this year on uh the cookbook coming out and um I think we'll talk later about the the ice cream the sugar free low carb keto ice cream that uh we've released um and it was you know f- strangely um beneficial to us f- you know having locked down it just you know have building these two projects um was easier during lockdown than it would have been otherwise if we'd been doing other activities. So although obviously I would much rather there hadn't been any outbreak of a, of a, um, of COVID, um, that's, that was the situation for us. And, um, kind of coincidentally, the, the book was ready, uh, to print at the same time as the ice cream came out. So we'd been able to launch that in September and, um, it's 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 been great the the response has been fantastic the book is um paleo canteen low carb on a budget and as you say it's available on amazon worldwide um in the uk and europe we encourage people to go to the website to buy it at paleocanteen.co.uk it um it's it amounts to the same thing more or less you'll get the same book but um Amazon takes four months to pay and doesn't pay as much, so...
0: Uh, <laughs> right, yeah. Support Ali, everyone. Go on. Well, I've not bought my copy yet, so that's good to know where to get it from now. Um, and I believe also there is a donation connected, isn't there, to each purchase to the Public Health Collaboration?
1: That's right. Regardless of where you buy it from, each purchase will um, result in a 50 pence donation to the Public Health Collaboration. Uh, that was important to myself and John, who co-wrote the book. Um, And, you know, David Unwin wrote the foreword to the book um, and has been very supportive, Um, as has Sam Felton, And we wanted to give something back there. So 50 pence from every book sale is going to the PHCE, which, you know, whose work is is fantastic.
0: That's superb. So what's been the response to the book so far then? How have people... Uh, has, has anyone given you feedback directly? Have you seen any recipe pictures that have been taken by some of the people who have bought the book?
1: Yeah, it's been lovely actually. Um, it was a labour of love, and uh, John and I put it together um, carefully, and you know, the, we, we took time and uh, got really good photographs done of the food. And um, the feedbacks reflected that uh, you know people love making the the, the recipes. We've had people say that It's all they need now, so they just you know they get all their uh, their their shopping in for the for the week to make some new recipes, and they've you know everyone has their favourites, and they 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 maybe make that once a week, and then they try other stuff, and maybe they make them in double batches so that they've got some leftovers, and um, the feedback's been fantastic, and we've got this uh, Facebook community which some of the people who've got bought the book have joined. It's uh, the canteen um paleo Canteen's online community on facebook and people share images of the food and um feedback and other tips as well and that's that's really nice it's it's lovely to put something out there that people can really uh get a lot of use out of and um you know the the the, the feedback from uh people who I really look up to in the community has been um Really nice. So, for example, Tom Watson, uh, he he he's been uh, uh Instagramming about it, um making wow, recipes from the amazing. book. Um Joanna Blytheman, the uh the food writer, she uh loaned a quote um to it and has been and, and did a lovely review of it in the Scottish Herald mag uh, magazine a few weeks ago. That was really nice see Hotra has been very kind about it. Um, obviously, David and Jen Unwin have been very supportive of the whole project. And then in Australia, Belinda Fetke, uh, Peter Bruckner, uh, Marianne damasi they've all um, got behind it too. So, And then I was on the, um, the Low Carb MD podcast, and Brian Lenskis and uh, Trokal have both been very complimentary about it. So... It's just it's and and a lot of doctors are buying it and showing it to their patients and having it there at their at their surgeries and right. Um, it, I, I think it f- it fills a need because people have been uh, accused when encouraging low carb of being kind of um, like it's like it's a middle class uh, posh diet that's all about salmon and fillet steaks and we wanted to write a book which was which showed that you can really eat very nutritious food and delicious um, and on a budget. So, yeah. uh, the you know, there's a whole chapter dedicated to eggs. it's a whole chapter dedicated to veg. There's a whole chapter dedicated to offals. There's a whole chapter dedicated to the cheaper, slower cooking cuts. And everything should be within the reach of uh, most people's budgets. And, you know, I've got food experience and in, in high-end restaurants but i would i would definitely defer to my co-author john mehan and say that you know he has the the better experience you know working for in london for Yotam Ottolenghi and right. um in some really high-end places in uh, glasgow edinburgh berlin and elsewhere and so he's brought years of, of experience to bear and I think you won't. People won't believe how good the recipes are. So well, there I'm you go. That's a heck of, of a
0: claim. I like that. Yeah. So we should try that and get some pictures, like from my family, when we're all eating it and uh, see what we have. And actually, really interesting what you say there because I think it was Professor Tim Noakes who himself has been developing recipes for communities in South Africa who are poorer. And I mean, I imagine he'll be talking about poorer communities than we probably have generally in Britain right now or in America or somewhere um and he says it's very accessible it's just how you do it and you know and if you get down to what the macronutrients are then of course that's the starting point to realize where your best places to get meat or whatever it might be is and and of course nutrition's the name of the game isn't it it's not just you know, you can be a bit snobby and think, oh, I only eat, like I said, the fillet steak. But actually, if you can have something slow cooked with the same sort of nutrition in it, much, much cheaper Then why not? Um, there is a bit of an irony here, actually. I remember talking to a butcher once and he said, oh, you want to get a nice ribeye, the fat in it is just perfect. Then I think he's trying to talk about shin as a cut. Is that a cut of beef, I think? And he said, oh, it's really fatty, you don't want it. And I was like, hang on a minute, it's the same animal, the same fat. It's weird, the concept that one piece of meat's bad, one piece of meat's good because it's tougher, but actually it's still delicious. And I had it slow cooked. It's
1: perfect. So, Shin's, okay. one my, Shin's one of my favourites.
0: Yeah, it's really, really good, isn't it? I loved it. Um, and actually last time you were here, you told me about the lamb breast. I've had that a few times now as well. That's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, and really cheap cuts uh, of meat from the butcher. So last time he spoke, of course, COVID um, was kind of a distant thing, really. I don't know if it was even big in Italy at the time or not. I know it's, um was spreading around the world but it was kind of early days. Now we're recording this in October, you know, things are quite different. Um, And I know that in your podcast, you've been talking to many different experts. In particular, I noticed, you know, COVID of course has come up a few times. I just wanted to ask really, what have you learned from your podcast? What are the experts
1: kind of saying that you've picked up on that you'd like to share with us? Sure. You know, there's been a variety of experts come on and talk about COVID. And... Whether it's people from um, a, a lay perspective or people from um, an academic perspective, but not sp- with a specific background in viral pathogens or epidemiology or anything like that, um, doctors as well, um, and you know professors in the area, and you know people have a, people have just have different priorities, and. Um different emphases on what we can know, and it's varied depending on when I've asked them so right. right at the start um I had Tucker goodrich on who's um you know proudly calls himself a pubMed warrior and you know his background is um systems analysis on Wall Street, so you know he's he's no slouch intellectually and uh, he, you know, his livelihood and many others depended on him being correct. So I, I take right, his yeah. um, view on things seriously, and you know, he was saying that the World Health Organization and um, the uh, American Center for Disease Control was very clear in its plan- uh, pandemic planning documents that um, the history of of viral pandemics shows that every time one happens, it's almost like we've forgotten the lessons from what when they happened before. Curiously, and I think counterintuitively, that means that every time there's a pandemic, people try to quarantine and people try to wear masks. And what they find is that they don't seem to make much of a difference. Wow, we, okay. So with quarantining or lockdowns, what seems to happen is, um, you can uh, prolong or delay the, the number of infections that happen in a territory where you're locking down, but ultimately, you know, the, the infections will happen. So that's, that's an interesting uh, point of view. Um, and then I had Professor Grant Schofield on, who's a professor of public health uh, in Auckland, and, you know, his take early doors in, from New Zealand where obviously they had some, they had and have some of the strictest measures um, was that we need to do the most good with the least harm. So he was keen to emphasize the the sort of downsides of lockdown um, and and, and asking the question, is lockdown the best long-term solution? Um, I guess because you, you tend to simply delay the infections which are bound to happen eventually. Um, he suggested yeah. that doing um, strong random sampling but not massive widespread testing is a good thing because then you get a true picture of what's happening in the in the community in different communities you know um, so he he kind of called for a real public discussion on the science and I think you know back in April I would have hoped for the same and it actually it's Turned out into a more of a um, eh, a public fight on the science, but you know I had um, Professor Kentaro Iwata from um, Kobe University on, and he's he's got a very high profile in Japan um, because he was the one who criticised the uh, the way that the the cruise ship the Diamond Princess was handled. Um, oh, I remember
0: was, this. This was early days where it had an outbreak and they were kind of stuck at sea, weren't they? Where they weren't
1: allowed to dock. Was it in Australia? It was off the coast of Japan. Japan, sorry, right. Yeah, and so he was all over Japanese television talking about what they should have done and what they did do. Right. So what was really interesting was that we're talking about back in April, end of March, beginning of April here, and it was a great... Um, opportunity to see how far the virus spread and how lethal it was in a closed community of people who were mainly at risk. So this is a cruise ship. Older people, right? Most people were older and it was a textbook case of how not to handle it if you didn't want to infect them. So um, they basically had terrible uh, procedures in place for restricting the spread, which meant that almost everyone was exposed. But that right. didn't mean that everyone was infected. Interestingly, and the uh, fatality rate was, um, you know, kind of curiously low. And he was he was you know cautious. He's a very cautious academic, and he said we can't necessarily uh, extrapolate the data from the Diamond Princess out to wider society. But what's actually happened is um, we've seen that the the figures for uh, infection rates and death rates since then have been pretty much the same. So okay, even in the worst scenario in terms of trying to control it, uh, where it's almost like you do everything you can to spread it, the in- infection and, and um, fatality rate is um, curiously low. So it kind of hints, it was an early hint at the uh innate immunity of um, all populations which has shown to be variable. For example in Japan where they didn't lock down the fatality rate has been extremely low uh, and they seem to have a, a, a widespread previous immunity to these types of coronaviruses whereas right. in um, you know, the likes of Peru, where there was a very harsh <laughs> lockdown, the fatality rates being quite high, where presumably there was less um, well, exposure, to it, exposure yeah. in the past to those types of coronavirus. So, so that's that was very interesting. And then I've had various other experts uh, talk about it, but usually it's kind of around the same thing. And I think the, the conclusions that we could tentatively make around April on um, the fact that uh, lockdowns don't tend to make much of a difference. They've been borne out by um, the results from, say, Peru versus Brazil. Peru did worse than Brazil, even though Brazil didn't lock down. Uh, various states within the US and so on. So that, that's that been interesting. And I think, as well, there's been a, a big emphasis when talking to people on the podcast uh, and when I went on a Ivor Cummins podcast um, about metabolic health and how that can really help in terms of protection now we don't know to what extent but we know that people who are metabolically unhealthy um have more susceptibility so
0: and of course we know that the western world in particular and actually it's not just the western world china's got a massively high diabetes rate hasn't it there there are metabolic health symptoms felt probably by most countries these days in the so-called developed world which is you know, worrying, isn't it, considering that, you know, if you look at the moon landings, the launch scene from 1969, you can see the shot of the people who are watching and they look really thin, which is strange considering, you know, like they were a mixture of age groups, whereas we've gotten to the mindset of, oh, yeah, we just have heavier people nowadays. It becomes almost normal, doesn't it? And it's it's quite sad to, to see how unhealthy many of us are. Um, so, yeah, so you know what I think I is think really interesting about you just saying about COVID It's still so early, isn't it? And it's going to be very interesting to see what happens the next few years with regards to the analysis. What I think is sad is how, as humans, we seem to, if we as a society experience something, we become much more aware of it. So it's interesting how you said about this pandemic. I'd say the kind of similar um, equivalent was probably the 2008 financial crash, where the lessons of 1929 were lost because people weren't alive from that time, although too young to remember, really. And so you kind of find that Germany were going back and taking more risks and whatnot. And then, of course, a crash happens and we're all very aware of it now, and we are since. And I think if you look at places like South Korea, their, prepar- their preparation for this sort of thing was much higher because they were much more aware of SARS in the past and about these other types of disease. And so they naturally as a society had tracing systems in place which they were much more able to fall back on whereas in this country supposedly we were prepared for a pandemic and because maybe you hadn't experienced one on that scale we we were a bit more sort of lost at sea for a while there it's kind of a bit depressing how humans can be a
1: little bit reactive to what their own experiences are right yeah a hundred percent agree and um you know it comes up again and again this thing of how people are really only very good at um thinking about what is right in front of them and what's in very recent memory and i think that's true for almost everyone it's hard to maintain perspective when there's seemingly scary things uh that uh, hijack your priorities i mean i think it's interesting talking about track and trace because that seems to be the the new battle lines in public conversation about it that yeah. um i i kind of I have a big question mark over how useful it can be to test, trace, and isolate um so many people. you know if ultimately you're destined to have as many cases as um there will be in a territory, and that just seems to be the way it, it goes and certainly the chief medical officer um, has been on radio, including Radio four in the last couple of days. Contravening what Matt Hancock is saying, and saying wow. that um and saying that you know you must reach a level of uh community immunity eventually. That's just how it works, you know, yeah. and, and uh people like Sunetra Gupta, uh Carl Hennigan, and other professors of this kind of thing um saying as much as well. So if you know the World Health Organization um and these people are saying repeated lockdowns is just a way of prolonging the life of the virus within the community i'm i don't understand why tra- test trace and isolate is not just more of the same yes you slowed it slow it all down but um, given that the you know the person who's in charge of the vaccine um development in oxford uh, university has said it'd be good if we come up with uh, a workable vaccine but It might take years and it probably will. So, you mustn't rely on it. And community immunity is the thing. So, um, you know, I think we're probably closer to a resolution of it than we think. Um, The the virus is is endemic. Uh, You know, everyone um, more or less now is uh, acknowledging that it's not going to be uh, uh, possible to eliminate it. It's, it's it's we're just going to have to you know deal with the fact that it's endemic, unfortunately. But that's the same with flu and other coronaviruses, rhinoviruses. Um. So, uh, what I expect to see is uh, an unfortunate but inevitable rise in uh, cases and deaths over the winter, um, right. as per normal flu season, um, and then it will fall back down again, and that will happen every year, just as it does with with flu, unfortunately, and that. Uh, um, the interventions that we concoct will have very little impact on that, except quality drug interventions and vaccine, if it appears and is effective and safe. So I think um, the, the resolution will actually be much quicker than a lot of people are saying, which is a good thing. Um, It's going to have to
0: naturally work its way out, is what you're kind of saying, I suppose. I suppose the the biggest thing, apart from medicine, then, is metabolic health. And if we can tackle that as individuals, then we should personally be in a better position to do so. I mean, obviously, we'd like the government to do something about that, of course, as well. But I think if, as individuals, we can try to look after metabolic health, then we will hopefully be in a better immune position, as Dr. Lassima Hotra says, right? Uh, and the 21-day immunity plan has that whole concept of how to be the healthiest you can be, so that if you
1: do get COVID, you've got the best odds of fighting it. Um, Absolutely, and we're in control of that as individuals. And I yep. think that is where we have to focus our attention: is what we can actually control as individuals, because sometimes it can seem a little bit scary and a little bit out of our control. Yep. And So, yep. um, you know, and I agree that there's there's a role for the individual, industry, and government. In um, affecting food choices I'm not sure what the correct split of responsibility is all I know is that we can certainly control what we put in our mouths and I think government probably has a role in regulating how food is advertised at us certainly I think irresponsible um, unhealthy advertising is uh, is you know, has been dealt with well in terms of tobacco. Um, and I think that's definitely a route for government. And we spoke when you came on the Canteen podcast about the role for industry as well. And I think yeah. demonising food companies is, is is not something that either of us would agree with, seeing as we run yeah. them. Yeah. Um, and there's there's a big role for, a big positive role for food companies to play.
0: Yeah, you know what, if you ever, I think it's true with everything, actually. If anyone says the food industry is bad, or all politicians are bad, or all whatever is bad, all European policies are bad, whatever it could be, you can make that statement about lots of things. And that's when you, you eliminate nuance, you then decide to make a, a sweeping statement, which of course, will take in so many different contradictions that it doesn't make any sense anymore. So yeah, I think you're quite right, you've got to look at it case by case. Um, and that's how good governance, good policy making, good decision making works, right? You take the ideas which work well, and then you try to critique the ones that don't work well, and that's how it should be. And I like that about you, Ali. You've definitely got a very sciencey background and a scientific brain, which I think really kind of helps the way that you you come at this, which which is like you know really being beneficial to me. So, um, just in terms of time, I've got a great deal of time le- left, and I just know that you're developing this ice cream uh, product at some point, which I'm incredibly excited by because I adore ice cream, and I can't wait. And basically my brownies and blondies are waiting to be put in a bowl next next to your ice cream, which obviously as soon as it's ready, I will send plenty away, my
1: friend. So tell us where we're up to. What, what's the story there? Yeah, so it's called Scoundrel and it's... Named after yourself, though? <laughs> there are rumours. Um, OK. And it's... Uh, the whole idea is that, you know, it's... um it's it's like you're it's, it's like you're you're being a bit naughty but you're getting away with it you know um it's a luxury dairy sugar free keto low carb ice cream so it's exactly the type of thing that i wanted when i first started eating low carb keto paleo um you know obviously it's it's primal rather than paleo because it's made with double cream but it gives you it gives that that luxury flavor and it um it's at an exciting stage so We've started making it here in Scotland, and it's available in uh, Glasgow, and Edinburgh, and various nice shops. And we're oh, talking. Oh, lovely! So it is around at the moment for those who are lucky enough to live up north of the border. Yep, yeah, exactly. Um, okay. And you can find the stockists on uh, on the website, um, and we're on Instagram at Eat Scoundrel as well. But um, we are talking at the moment to um, bigger retailers, and we want to get. You know around the UK just as soon as possible so I would say follow us on social media um and just be kept up to date because you know fingers crossed it won't be long before you can get it uh, all over the shop right taste testing time if
0: you need a taste tester, I've got a very good palette for these types of uh, low carb. <laughs> dessert so please send some my way i'll be i'll take the hit for you okay so if you need a <laughs> taste tester you know where i am okay so in terms of how they can uh, people listening out can connect with you what are the best channels where can they find you
1: yeah so i'm active on twitter and facebook and instagram all at paleo canteen and uh, at eat scoundrel
0: okay and the podcast is the canteen podcast that's right. The Canteen yeah. Podcast. On Apple, Spotify, it's everywhere, isn't it? So go yeah. and have a listen. I really recommend it. Um, I guarantee listeners, as you listen to this program, you will become more educated by the end of each episode. They are truly brilliant. Uh, well, apart from the other one, but the rest of them are very, very good. So I recommend going and checking out those experts. Ali, thank you for your time today. It's been great catching up again. It's been too long, um, but yeah, we're going to we're going to record the next Devil's Advocate episode now. So uh, everyone's going to have to wait a
1: week, I'm afraid, and you'll get it next Tuesday. But for now, take care, Ali. Speak soon. Thanks, Dan.